0: Questions are the doorway to connection. To me, a thoughtful question asked by someone who then gives really deeply attentive listening is one of the purest expressions of love in my book. And the fascinating thing about asking good questions is that studies show that people who ask really good questions are thought of as better conversationalists, even though they're going to spend a good chunk of their time just listening
1: quietly, not even speaking. I'm Jocelyn K. Gly, and this is Hurry Slowly, a podcast about pacing yourself, where this season I'm exploring the question, how do we begin again? In the wake of, or the hoped for future wake of, this global pandemic which in many ways has kind of helped us hit the reset button on the way we view the world. And I think one of the most common experiences we've all had has been awakening to the sheer joy of spending time IRL with other humans, as well as awakening to what we really need in those relationships and how we might nurture them better. Pulling on that thread for today's episode, I dig into a rich conversation with writer and designer Kat Bellows someone who has thought deeply about real-world friendships and how to cultivate them. I should note that this interview was originally recorded on August 31st, 2021, in front of a live Zoom audience. As always, if this conversation lights up your brain and makes you think a little bit differently, I would welcome your donation at hurryslowlyco slash donations. This is now an ad-free, listener-supported podcast, and your contributions really help us thrive. All right, let's dive in. Kat Velos is a designer, a facilitator, and a writer whose work aims to help people connect in more meaningful ways. In January of 2020, she published her wonderful book, We Should Get Together, The Secret to Cultivating Better Friendships which was designed to address the loneliness epidemic that has been slowly and insidiously spreading within America for decades now. In the book, Kat pinpoints the natural desire within each of us to be deeply known and speaks thoughtfully to how we can proactively cultivate richer, more authentic friendships. Of course, as we all now know, 2020 was a rough year for cultivating friendships, Just three months after We Should Get Together was published, we went into lockdown here in America, and the CDC's strong advice was that we should definitely not get together. In an admirably speedy response, Kat released a supplement to We Should Get Together, a slim book called Connected from Afar, a guide to staying close when you're far away, which offers up a raft of prompts for continuing to nourish our friendships from a distance. We're now about 18 months into this pandemic, teetering on the cusp of emergence, but unsure because of the proliferation of all the variants, and navigating a strange sea of emotions. Many of us are starved for, longing for, renewed in-person contact, at the same time as we're dealing with a new level of social awkwardness due to our prolonged isolation. And we're realizing that some of our expectations and desires around friendship may have changed after having had so much time for solo reflection. As we lean into our longing for community and deeper authenticity in our friendships, amidst this mishmash of emotions, I feel like Kat is the perfect person to talk to. Kat Veles, welcome to Hurry Slowly. Hi, Jocelyn.
0: Thank you so much for having me here today.
1: So sometimes I... Start out with a softball question to ease into things with a guest, but this moment, this past 18 months hasn't really been a softball time. So we're just going to dive right into the hard stuff. Let's do it. (laughs) (laughs) I'd like to begin with a question that was sparked by someone in my community. What's your take on how new and existing friendships and communities have been impacted by the pandemic? And I would love to hear about the positives, if you see some, as well as the negatives. And I know this is kind of a big question, so take your time. Yeah, it's
0: a big question, but it's a timely question, and it's something that uh, we can all relate to. You know, the pandemic has impacted the friendships and communities of essentially every person on the planet um, and because this illness is spread from person to person, uh, not from you know tree to person, it makes us look at every person in our life in a new way, yeah, whether that's the people that we already know or the people that we don't know. So with that has come a range of positives and negatives as you mentioned. So, In terms of positives, one of the things that this pandemic really showed me and that I have reflected on in this time is a quote I once heard a long time ago, um, and I can't remember who said it, but it said, the way to love something is to realize that it may be lost. And in this pandemic, what it's shown us is like, our lives are so fragile and so fleeting. And the way to really show up and love each other is to realize how easy it is to lose each other. Easier now than perhaps any time in the before times, and so that goes with people, and and uh, with that comes renewed sense of value, renewed sense of like wanting to tell someone that they matter to you, wanting to tell someone how much your relationship means to you, wanting to deepen those connections that matter to you because you realize you may lose them; they may not always be there. It's not something we can take for granted, and so with that, it instigates us to be more intentional about connection. It instigates us to like be really upfront with each other, like put all our cards on the table. Um, And if it's weird or awkward, like that's completely relatable (laughs) because we all feel a little bit weird and awkward. And I I think something sweet about that is that we can just be more emotionally open and we don't have to do as much of the like, acting like everything's perfect all the time. Um, It's okay to say if you feel strange, it's okay to say if you feel out of place or out of practice, because there's just a really good chance that whoever you're talking to can probably relate to that, or has struggles of their own that are related to the pandemic, and so that relatability that we have to each other, I think, gives us more empathy and more acceptance for each other as well. And of course, there's negatives. This is certainly not a bowl of cherries. I would not say that at all. Um, and with that, certainly, as you mentioned, you know, the loneliness epidemic uh, that was already going pretty strong here in the United States, at least, it was already high. And unfortunately for some people, the pandemic has exacerbated that. It's made it tougher to stay connected. It's made it tougher to make new friendships when people feel stymied by distance or a sense of like, if I can't see somebody face to face, how will I make a friend? Some people are doing that still. Um, But if the default uh, preference there is like wanting to do stuff IRL, then that frustration is going to be a real challenge at getting closer during this time of distance. Um, and one other thing that I think makes it a little bit, um, I don't want to say harder. I think it's a little bit more of a creative challenge is figuring out how to fit someone into your normal life. You know, nothing is normal life about right now, but it's also normal life is still happening in, the, in this format. And so figuring out how to fit a new friend into your life when you're maybe staying home most of the time, maybe not doing the normal, normal things you would be doing out and about in the world, um, can be a different challenge. But I also think sometimes that the way that we approach this challenge and the opportunity that it comes with is sometimes based on our comfort level, it's sometimes based on our personalities, sometimes based on our approach to a situation. You know, because I've had people tell me during this time that they feel more connected than ever because they have leaned all the way into the opportunity of saying like, wow, virtual hangouts and online communities make people so much more accessible. You don't have to be limited to -to face-to-face. And I've also had people on the other end of the spectrum say like, wow, I feel so much more stressed, so much more disconnected. um, And the interactions I'm having, you know, they feel too light, too shallow, you know, not really as deep as they want. And so it's really the full spectrum of experience. And um, I think it's important to honor that.
1: How do you find yourself being more intentional? That was something that you had uh, just mentioned. I'm curious how that's playing out for you and the way that you're connecting with your friends. Definitely reaching
0: out more to friends to tell them that I'm thinking of them, to tell them that I care about them, even if it's been a while since we've talked. That never gets old. Like It's never a bad time to reach out to someone and let them know that they matter to you. Um, Just today, I was thinking about a friend that I haven't seen in probably six months, and I was like, I'm just thinking of you, and I'm sending you a lot of love and no rush or pressure to respond right now, but I just want you to know I'm thinking of you, and she was like so happy and so sweet. She was like, oh my gosh, thank you so much. I miss you too, and there's like no... Blame about how much time has passed. There's no like worry about any of that. It's just a sweet way to connect. And so taking the time to do that, whether um, through a text or through a card in the mail or through uh, whatever your favorite way to communicate is or whatever way that you know your friend would love to be communicated with, like g- give that to them.
1: It's really a-, a gift. Yeah, that's something I've been a lot more conscious of doing lately is when I'm having, you know, positive or grateful thoughts about someone to just make sure I take that out of my head and, you know, communicate it to them um, as soon as possible, because we could all do with a little bit more of that. And, you know, I think that's in line with something else that you mentioned, which is really this kind of openness and this tenderness that has really emerged um, alongside of this situation, which is, Definitely something that I've felt as a real opportunity for experimentation within my professional life, for experimentation within my friendships. There's been something really freeing about that. Is is that how you've experienced it as well? Yeah. I mean,
0: I as a designer, one of the things I remember, like the way that I looked at this situation was like, oh my God, this is like the world's most bizarre design challenge. You know, because as a designer, one of the things that I know is like you work within constraints, you always work within constraints. And it's often the constraints that give rise to creativity. You know, it's like if I'm thinking about making something or creating something, it's like, sure, the sky's the limit, but there's usually some boundaries on that. And I remember pacing up and down one day thinking like, wow, like, we are going to get together and it's not going to be in person or like we're going to have um, a connection event and it's not going to be face-to-face. You won't be able to make eye contact with somebody for real, for real. And so like looking in the webcam like this, you know, and I just remember thinking, wow, like what a freaking crazy design challenge <laughs> uh, to work with constraints of this nature. And I've met a lot of people who have leaned into the the challenge of this and said, like, what can we do right now that we could not do before? Not to say, oh, better or worse, but just what's different. Like, what is special right now that we can do? Whether... Um, I've met a lot of people, uh, through running one of the programs I did for a while in the pandemic that were like, you know what, let's get really into snail mail. Let's like send cards and send letters. Cause you know, people are home and they would love to get some sweet mail at home, you know, and other people have come up with like really fascinating online virtual events, um, creating experiences for people to come together online in a way that is imaginative and creative and playful and wouldn't be possible for everybody to attend, uh, without great expense or challenge in a physical room, you know? So I think that those sorts of things are kind of inspiring, not kind of, very inspiring, and have been a really special part of this moment.
1: Yeah, 100%. That creative blossoming is something that I'm really hoping we can um, hold on to, you know, whenever we are able to sort of fully move forward. Um, Hopefully that moment will come. Coming back to this idea of friendship, one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about was, I was thinking about how, you know, of course, during the past 18 months, there have been many levels of reckoning that have unfolded. Reckonings about race, about justice, about healthcare. But I think there's also this less talked about aspect that relates to a reckoning around friendship and around community. And I think because we have been so isolated with so much time to reflect and because the stakes have been so high, right, with regard to the health risks of spending time with other people and really just this kind of psychic load that we were all carrying, that we're all still carrying, there was really this sense of, at least for me, of kind of the week getting separated from the chaff, right? Like, who do I really want in my life? And also thinking about, like, who's really got my back? And I'm curious how that reckoning unfolded for you personally or or for folks that you know in terms of friendships. For me personally, I will say my strongest friendships,
0: pretty much unaffected, like unchanged by the pandemic because we're tight BFFs, like that's not changing. And uh, for some of my closest friends, we already live in different states, so we're not already seeing each other face to face a lot. Um, so those things have been unchanged and if anything, possibly even gotten stronger, um, cause my social circle has shrunk as well. Um, my weak ties, like maybe like loose acquaintances, they're still like out there. This is probably true for a lot of people. They're kind of on ice right now, but it feels like eh, there's a happy reconnection possible there again later. Um, and what I've experienced and a lot of folks have experienced is like that middle circle, those mid-strength ties kind of being the ones that are the most like, what's up with these? Um, there's an interesting article in The Atlantic um, called something um, like, where Where have our middle friends gone? Or the pandemic erased entire categories of friendship. And that sort of thing um, has happened um, for me in some ways. Because the people that were like, I really like you, but when our resources are really stretched to capacity and everybody has to kind of like hunker down, like what's it going to take to maintain like all these additional kind of like mid-level friendships? And so I think there's been um, a quieting for a lot of folks, myself included, of that middle ring of people, Um, not always due to conflict or challenge, um, sometimes just due to ability, like capacity. Like what what do you, What can you do? How much can you maintain from your position at home in front of your couch? And as an introvert, I have to say that I'm not necessarily bummed about a quieting down of my social life during this time, because honestly, before the pandemic, I often felt kind of stretched thin, like the pressure to be constantly social, the pressure to be constantly going, it's kind of tiring, kind of hard to live in an extroverted world as an introvert. And so I have not minded so much the quieting down. Of that sense of like pressure and um, constant extroversion uh, interaction. I really kind of like the quiet time. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And for a lot of folks that I know, you know, they've expressed that they have less patience for some of their weak friendships. So Like separating the wheat from the chaff, like you talked about. A lot of people taking stock and acknowledging, like, hey, if this, you know, friendship wasn't actually a real choice, it was kind of just out of convenience or obligation. They're like, eh, maybe now's a good time to take a step back. And that's okay because everything's kind
1: of on the table right now. Everything's kind of okay. You don't have to gnash your teeth about it. So I want to shift gears into talking a little bit more of some of this core elements of friendship. And we should get together. You quote Andrea Bonoir, who's the author of another book about friendship as saying, quote, trust is built when we have the opportunity to let someone down, but we don't end quote. Could you say a little bit more about your perspective on trust and friendships and maybe, maybe how, if at all, the pandemic has affected that perspective?
0: Yeah, I really think it's taken on a whole new dimension in the pandemic. Trust, you know, like I was saying earlier, like this this view that we have now into each other's attitudes and the and the things each other value, it's just like an entire level of understanding that would not have been possible before. So when I think about trust, I don't only think about like trust with me like one to one, you're a person, I'm a person, do I trust you. I also think about trust in terms of the world that we share together, you know. So I think about you know, how does this person that I call my friend care about their fellow humans? How does this person care about their health, my health? Um, What values are important to this person? Um, Is this someone who prioritizes community care or their personal preferences above everything else? And so trust for me is informed by the answers to all of those kinds of questions. And if I were to think about these kinds of questions and answers, like in the pre-pandemic time, all of this would be rhetorical because would be like, oh, if there was like a world crisis, like, what would you do? It's like right now, there is a world crisis. So all of these rhetorical questions are extremely literal and they're observable. It's not hypothetical anymore. And so we're watching in real time how each other responds. And in doing that, we learn so much more about each other. We learn about ourselves. And I think it gives us an opportunity to inform in a much, much deeper way, do I trust this person? And like, how much do I want to trust them? How much do I need to trust them? You know, to make an analogy, um, if I were to think about seeing um, somebody doing something that I felt was like harmful, right? So like, it could be as simple as like throwing litter on the ground or like something much more damaging, like hurting an animal or hurting a child. Like, I would not trust that person, Um, even though they didn't hurt me personally, like that action hurts the world. It hurts other humans that I care about or other beings that I care about. And so trust is affected by those things that we observe about how each other creates a healthy world with healthy relationships in it. And so being um, observant of each other and how we treat each other and this world that we share are opportunities to also build trust and they're opportunities to sometimes lose trust or to break trust. So that's it's it's a much broader perspective and maybe maybe i think more deeply about this than a lot of other people do but that's honestly a big part of how i i see it
1: one of the things that really comes out in your book in we should get together is this deep thoughtfulness and really i'm trying to think of a sexier word sort of maintenance that goes into you know, cultivating really deep friendships. And I think for a lot of us, the expectation is a certain kind of effortlessness mm. with friendship that we really don't expect from our romantic relationships or our familial relationships. And I'm curious if you could speak to that expectation of effortlessness. Mm.
0: I think that the illusion of effortlessness is the cause of a lot of unnecessary strife and pain because none of these things is effortless. You know, as you mentioned, not romantic relationships, familial relationships, and friendship. You know, maybe because at some point in our life, like childhood, (laughs) maybe some of us experienced friendship being really easy, um, being somewhat effortless. And so we're like, oh, it should always be that way but nothing about being a child is equivalent to being an adult. Like every single thing about being an adult is more complicated than it is in childhood. (laughs) And so the same is true with friendship, unfortunately. And, and I don't think that's like a quote unquote bad thing. Like we get more complex and our lives get more complex. And so sometimes our friendships and our relationships and how we interact is going to get more complex, but that's not necessarily a negative thing. And, there's something else about this effortlessness that I, that I think about when you ask this question, and it has to do with the like spreading of this idea. I don't know if you've like maybe encountered this, but there's this idea around like people removing anything from their life that doesn't serve them. It's like, oh, that doesn't serve me. I'm removing that from my life, and and what's underlying this idea, and that I think is a little problematic, is this idea that we should only keep things in our life that like serve us, like everyone in the world is here to serve me and everything in the world is here for my like sole perpetual pleasure and like only serving me. And I, I the reason I think that's problematic is because if you're going to throw away a person or a relationship at the very first sign of challenge or dissatisfaction or um, conflict, then you're going to rob yourself of a lot of opportunities for growth and for healing and for forgiveness. And you might find yourself like constantly disappointed. And so I just don't think that we should think of friendship in that way. It's like, oh, you're just here to serve me. And if this doesn't serve me, get out of here. Um, It's just a trap. And I think it's a path to disconnection and and loneliness. So... um, You know, when I think of this question, I think of like that JFK quote, like, ask not what your country could do for you, but what you could do for your country. (laughs) It's like, ask not how your friends can serve you, but how can you be of service to your friends, actually? How can you show up with commitment to show these people that they matter to you so that we don't treat our relationships like a place of extraction or consumption, but instead think of them as a place for connection and understanding and Growth And like real dedication. And when we do that with understanding and growth and dedication, like that actually, it's not effortless, but that's where the good stuff is.
1: Yeah, that idea of extraction was really what was coming to mind for me and is something that came up in a previous interview um, on Hurry Slowly, where we were talking about that idea of looking at friendships or relationships in this very transactional, capitalistic, exchange-based type of way where there's a very kind of short timeline for whatever, you know, energetic exchange, exchange of support is happening. And that we, you know, would be much better served by looking at that as having a really much longer arc, you know, that it's not an exchange, that it's more, you know, sort of a who knows, a circle or a web or a network, you know, that we're kind of feeding into rather than this one-to-one, you give me something, I give right. you something type of
0: attitude. Yeah. It's not a transaction. You know, certainly there needs to be balance and reciprocity and mutuality and friendship, but it's not a transaction. It's not a place. It's not a store. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I'm curious, what do you do in situations where you feel like, um, It is imbalanced when you're having, um, you know, the way that you're um, having a conversation with someone or, you know, in a repeated fashion, right, where maybe it feels like you are not being given space or you are not being heard in that friendship. How do you deal with situations like that?
0: I'm trying to think of a specific example. I'm really quite blessed with (laughs) really uh, reciprocal friends, right? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> or maybe those are the ones who've uh, filtered to the top and stick around for a while, um, but I think it's important to ask for what you need. And I also, when when I think about that question, I also think about. So this is the non reciprocity that you're talking about doesn't come up for me so much in terms of communication, but an example of where this has come up for me is in terms of like availability, and. Reach out, like the reach out, reach back thing, right? Um, And one way that that has manifested in my life is that I have chosen to not have kids, not be a parent. Many of my friends have chosen to become parents. And so when that happened, that change happened in in their life, suddenly their availability um, was much less, right? Because taking care of a newborn or an infant or a child is a lot of extra work that I don't have to deal with. Um, And so that lack of reciprocity would come up there of uh wow like i'm reaching out to you and like maybe you're not reaching out as frequently um or i would like to meet up but i always have to come to you uh, and so like that sort of imbalance or reciprocity would come up but i think it's important to just like take into consideration like what is this person's circumstance like maybe it's a gift that i am more available than they are and that doesn't need to be a critique or a fault with them particularly if there's an acknowledgement from them. Um, I've had this conversation with a friend who, you know, she had a one-year-old or within the first year of her kid's life, she just like was really upfront with me and was like, I need to just let you know, I am really sorry, but I just have no time for anything else. Taking care of this baby is a full-time thing. And I was like, girl, I get it. Like, don't stress. Like when you're free, hit me up. And if not, I'll reach out to you, but please don't feel pressure, you know? And I think that when we really have empathy for each other and a lack of like blame and not like counting chips and like being like, well, you didn't do this perfectly. So I'm mad at you. It's like, let it go. Like, don't take it personal. Like really just try to understand what the other person is going through. And when you can be together, be in the moment.
1: And if you can't look forward to the next time. So I want to shift gears and get a little more into balancing the importance of friendship with other things that are happening in our lives. And when I tap into the pulse of people around me right now, I'm feeling a lot of kind of tectonic shifts happening, right? Huge ruptures and openings and life-changing decisions being made, And I'm hearing about a lot of folks who are deciding to pick up and to move to a new city or they're deciding to take an entirely new career path. And one of the things that was really interesting to me about you as I was reading your book is that it's very obvious that you deeply value friendship and personal connection, but you're also someone who moved three times and took six different jobs in the seven years preceding the creation of the book we're talking about, We Should Get Together. And so I'm curious how you weigh the value of rootedness and the connection that that gives you to your community versus the value of reinvention and pursuing self-growth or pursuing professional growth. I feel like there's a tension there between self-actualization and belonging that I think a lot of us are exploring
0: there is absolutely, uh, attention there. And, uh, one of the earlier sections in the book where I talk about our extremely mobile culture and like constantly moving way of life is like one of the biggest, uh, impediments to friendship. When I was in my twenties and thirties, um, I placed a much higher value on exploration and that reinvention that you're talking about. So I like that freedom of like new adulthood. I was like, I can move anywhere. I can do anything. Um, this is amazing. (laughs) Uh, It was very energizing and I made friends in a completely different way at that time in my life. And then somewhere around the second half of my thirties, I decided I wanted to stay in one place for a long time on purpose, right? And that's this place I live now in California. And ironically, the more I stayed still, the harder it was to keep my friends because they kept moving. (laughs) And I talk about this in the book, like, where is everybody? Like, I'm going to goodbye parties, like every couple months, And so that was fascinating to me because when I was constantly on the move and everybody was constantly on the move, I was like, oh, this is just life happening. This is just adulthood. Um, But when I was like, I'm going to root down here, I'm going to stand still. And that's when I saw things from a completely different perspective. And that's when that tension around community and connection and consistency and that belonging really got highlighted there. And so I do think with that, the learning uh, for me out of that is that connection belonging can be found right wherever you are. Um, And instead of being addicted to this idea that the grass is always going to be greener someplace else in another city, in another place, um, it's good to also explore, like just bloom right in the pot where you're planted. And with that, there's a lot of opportunity. and I honestly think a lot of people would be happier if they focused on friending locally rather than being like, "Oh, maybe if I move to another city, I'll, I'll be happier there or whatever." And it's not like those were the reasons I moved before. It was just like, "Wow, new adventure, right? Like young adulthood exploring. Um, but I think it's it's a really different orientation to the world than um, when you decide to stay. In one place, and when you notice who is staying in the same place as you and who is leaving, um, and what are you willing to do to maintain the friendships with people who move far away versus the ones who maybe are right there in your town or up the block? One, yeah, and this is this is I love this question because this really touches on something that I think about a lot nowadays, which is really friending hyper locally, and that's one of the. Upsides of the pandemic is like a lot of people got to stay close to home. It's like that's a good time to invest in like getting to know your neighbors more or getting to see who else right in your town or on your block is super cool that you've maybe
1: not talked to before. I mean, literally every one of my new friends here where I live in upstate New York, I made through my dogs, (laughs) through walking my dogs at the same place every morning. So definitely keeping it hyper-local, I think, in that way. I'm curious to kind of ground what we're talking about um, in terms of making new friends in maybe some realistic perspective. I'm here. I'm upstate. I moved here um, in October of 2019, about six months before the pandemic started. So I kind of got here. I had time to get settled into my house. I made it through an upstate winter, and then I was ready to come out and emerge and meet folks and obviously you know that didn't happen in the way that I had anticipated and it's definitely been a real challenge to meet folks during this this time i've I've felt although certainly I have made some some new friends who are were deepening those relationships but as You know, people listening are thinking about, um, you know, maybe they've moved to a new place, maybe they're thinking about moving to a new place, or maybe they're just in a place for their lives where they really want to make new friends. I'm curious what your perspective is on, like, literally, how many new friends do you think it's realistic to make within a certain time period? Like, let's say... A year, because I feel like we don't even give ourselves a yardstick sometimes for these things. And then, you know, we feel disappointed because we haven't kind of set ourselves up with any type of realistic expectation. Great question. One in a year
0: is doing good. So Robin Dunbar, who um, is an evolutionary psychologist, uh, study you know the founder of Dunbar's number, which looks at like how many people we can realistically maintain relationships with, um, studies this stuff. He has a wonderful book called uh, Friends. <laughs> it's if you're a total geek like me and you like reading about scientific studies, it's just like page after page of like summaries of studies that him and his colleagues have done. And one of the interesting findings from one of them is that. On average, adults lose 1.5 friends each year. And again, lose could be for any kinds of reasons. It doesn't always mean having a big fight and a breakup. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it's just drifting apart through like the natural flow of life. Just through natural attrition, you're just going to be losing one to two friends per year. And so you need to be adding one to two friends per year just to remain like stasis, right? Just to have that like consistent Access to friends and not just have them all trickle away after a few years. And so don't feel bad if you have not made your one friend yet. It's August, you're still working on it. <laughs> um, it's okay. And with that, you know, there's similarly, maybe not the most uh, brightest statistic is that the average American hasn't made a new friend in the last five years. And so if you're aiming for one good friend a year, like that is a really, really good goal because you have to acknowledge too that it takes time to turn a stranger into a really close friend. Um, according to research by Jeffrey Hall, it takes 200 hours to convert a stranger into a best friend. And so give yourself time. It's going to take time. It's going to take frequency of contact. It's going to take communication. It's going to take time to really weave your life together and to become not just a cool person that you each know but like someone you might call in a time of need or someone you would be there for like at the drop of a hat and so investing in that depth and creating that depth is not um, a, a waste of time and it will take some time and you need to say like You have the time. A lot of people say, oh my gosh, I don't have that much time. And it's like, well, a lot of us use our time on social media or we watch season after season of different shows on Netflix. And it's like, you have time for friends. But when you make a choice to spend that time a different way, instead of maybe spending a connection uh, activity or special conversation time with that friend, like that's time that you're trading away from deepening that relationship. So that's all it is. People like different kinds of depth. You know, some people like to do activities together. Some people like to have really long heart to heart conversations. I'm more in that latter camp, but you need to kind of be uh, compatible with what your goals are and in the dedication that you each want to make to like staying a part of each other's lives and how you show up for each other is what's going to help you become that hopefully not just a good friend this year, but a good friend for many years to come.
1: I have to say that um, picture feels a little grim to me. These <laughs> one to two friends <laughs> fading away every year, and then you know maybe making um, one to two good friends per year. Definitely the making of the new friends, one to two friends a year. That that feels feels really accurate to me. But maybe to um, lighten this picture a little bit, I'm curious if we could talk about. And I know you talk about this in your book a little bit. Um, some ways to maybe accelerate um, that process of cultivating intimacy with someone. Um, For instance, I have a relatively new friend um, who I met um, maybe a few months before I moved upstate, but who now feels like a very close friend. And I think one of the reasons that that happened was that this person offered to help me move upstate to, you know, load up my moving van and they drove up here with me and they helped me unload and they helped me, you know, assemble my bed and, you know, do all that stuff. And when they offered, I was almost a bit shocked. Like, I don't know you that well. I'm really shocked that you're offering this, but I really needed the help and no one else was offering. So I said, yes. And I feel like that really accelerated our friendship to, you know, go on this sort of mini road trip together to do this, you know, thing that was really meaningful and a little bit scary for me of moving into this new house by myself. So I'm curious your thoughts on kind of how we can deepen those friendships maybe um, a little bit more quickly, perhaps through doing things in slightly more unorthodox ways. What a beautiful story. Thank you for sharing that. Um, And are you still pretty good friends with that person? Yes. Yes. They recently moved up from the city and now they live 20 minutes away and I'm having dinner with them after this interview. (laughs) I love
0: this. (laughs) This is beautiful. Absolutely. One of the best ways that you can deepen a friendship is by helping each other out. Um, So many people are afraid to ask for help, but Are so excited to receive it. And that is a really, really special way to deepen a friendship. I have a whole section in the book about asking for help because a lot of people feel nervous doing it. They're worried. They don't want to, you know, inconvenience anybody or be a burden. And it's like, it's a gift when you invite someone into your life in that deeper way, whether it's like you said, helping you move or picking you up from the airport and asking about your trip or helping with your kid. Like, it is a real, honor to be invited. And because what that shows is trust. When you allow someone to help you, it shows that you trust them. And that's one of the ways that we deepen trust is by giving each other chances to earn that trust and then doing it. One of the things I also thought about as you were describing that is one of my mentors in my twenties, I was in AmeriCorps and I had an amazing, amazing AmeriCorps director. And one of the things she taught us on our team was like, if you want to be like excellent at life. She's like, the number one thing you can do is follow through. When you say you're going to do something, you're going to be there for somebody, follow through, like don't cancel because 80% of people are going to cancel. She's like, so if all you do is follow through, you're going to stand out like a shining star (laughs) in the sky because so many people just don't do it. They flake. And flakiness, (laughs) it's good in a pastry, it's bad in a friendship. And if you show up for people and don't flake and don't cancel plans and like really be there for each other, like that is a really, really, really small but mighty way to deepen and really uh, strengthen your friendships quickly
1: and over time. And what about the power of questions for increasing the depth and intimacy of our friendships. That's something that you touch on in We Should Get Together, and you cite research that supports that conclusion. And it's something that I've definitely experienced in my life, whether it's me asking someone a question or having someone who is really thoughtful about asking me a question. Um, a new friend of mine, for instance, you know, we went on a walk in the woods and um, he asked me a really great question. Car- Great question. I think it was something around like what, uh, you know, is a paradigm you're trying to shift right now or something of that nature. And you offer a lot of sample questions for deepening conversation and kind of deepening intimacy in the book. You know, it may seem a bit obvious, but I'm curious if you could tell me more about your thoughts on how crafting better questions can really help us start to move into that space of knowing someone better and being more deeply known. Mm -hmm. Questions are the doorway to connection. To me, a thoughtful
0: question asked by someone who then gives really deeply attentive listening is one of the purest expressions of love in my book. And the fascinating thing about asking good questions is that studies show that people who ask really good questions, are thought of as better conversationalists, even though they're going to spend a good chunk of their time just listening quietly, not even speaking. So if you want to be thought of as a great conversationalist, ask better questions. And like you said, with your friend on the walk, when you have the opportunity to ask like a small talk question or a shallow question, that is also an opportunity to ask a really powerful question, to ask a really transformative question, and to really invite the other person to reveal themselves to you in a way that feels safe and uh, open. You know, uh, Brene Brown talks about vulnerability begets vulnerability, so it's like you can't just wait around being like, "When, when does it happen?" It's like. When you take that chance to tell me a meaningful thing about your life or your feelings and thoughts, it lets me know like I can take a meaningful risk to let my thoughts and feelings be known more as well. And that's all we want is to be deeply known. We want to feel that sense of connection, that energy between my heart that connects to your heart. And we see and we feel each other in that space. And the way to do it, honestly, is like a really beautiful question. That's why I, like, I include all my better than small talk questions in the book, and I like do graphics about this online on social media. Like I want people, I want to like rid the world of crappy conversations, <laughs> and in doing so, give everybody access to
1: better connection too. <laughs> I am a huge fan of better questions, so I one thousand percent support this uh, support this cause. Could you share a story about a question that really changed things for you in a friendship or really opened things up?
0: Yeah. Um, One of the, honestly, most challenging questions that anybody I think could ever have with a friend is, are we going to stay friends? Um, This is a talk that I had with a friend of mine, we had been friends at that point for about 10 years. And we had reached a point in our friendship where we were really struggling. And we had to have this conversation of like, are we going to stay friends? It's kind of like when people are dating and they're like, are we going to break up? Or are we going to stay together? It was like that. And we decided to stay friends. <laughs> we decided to keep, you know, pushing through and we're still friends. It's been 20 years. But that was honestly like the most profound question. I think two people can ask each other is like, are we both going to do this? Like, are we going to be committed? Are we going to like stick through the tough times and keep going? And what do we need to do that successfully from each other? Because people change over time and the way that we, who we are in the world and who we can be to each other will change over time. And so that question of, are we going to stay friends is really one of like, are we going to be committed to this and to learning and growing and to allowing the other person to also learn and grow and possibly change over time. So that's, that's a question that really – I don't know if it changed things for me in a friendship, but it changed certainly my perspective on what it means to be in a committed friendship. And I'm really, really glad we had that conversation.
1: Yeah. I mean, I don't think that conversation comes up very often. That question comes up very often. I think so often we just let it drift or we fade away or – some people ghost, you know, we just kind of, kind of back out of it rather than actually having that sort of head on conversation. Yeah. And it takes, a, it takes courage, you know, because the, the thing is
0: there's not an automatic yes as the answer to that question. It's like accepting the possibility of rejection and still going for it because what you want is clarity. When you have that conversation and say like, here's what I would really love about staying friends and here's what's a challenge for me right now. Tell me about you. Tell me what you would really love about staying friends and tell me what's a challenge for you too.
1: I love that word clarity. I feel like it's what I am constantly seeking in all situations and it is also something that is uh, frequently much more um, painful or difficult to grapple with at first than I expected going into it sort of the the prelude to any healing right is clarity but then you have to kind of move into that you are a self-described introvert you already talked about that i'm curious what you think introverts need to know about building new friendships and community and how you think that's different from the approach that extroverts might take yeah
0: introverts if you're out there i just want you to know there's nothing wrong with you we live in an extroverted world (laughs) Wants us to pretend to be extroverts all the time. Um, team introvert. Yes, I see you. And the book Quiet, by the way, is also a really empowering book for introverts to read um, in terms of our approach to not just friendship and community, but also like leadership and how we show up in the world. Um there's nothing wrong with being introvert. And I think the skills and qualities that make people introvert are also a gift that thankfully I I think more of the world is beginning to understand and appreciate. Um, And with that said, I know sometimes it's good to also push ourselves, right? Not to push yourself to the brink of exhaustion or to the brink of like denying your own needs, but, and I have to (laughs) honestly learn this for myself all the time is that sometimes it's worth it to go to the social thing. Like Even when I don't really want to go, about half of the time when I get there, I'm kind of glad I did. Um, Once I get over the hump, I'm like, oh, yeah, this is really nice, actually. So sometimes it's worth it to put yourself out there. And the other thing is that studies have shown that for people who are experiencing loneliness, and this is not a thing that says only introverts are lonely or anything like that. I'm not saying that, but people who often are are lonely or worried about making friends or worrying that they're going to be like bad at making friends or not going to perform socially like perfectly or who uh kind of berate themselves about how they performed socially in the past like all of these like insidious kinds of thoughts they're they really get in the way of connection they make it more likely for us to think that other people don't like us They make it more likely for people to dislike us. And then we end up feeling more lonely. So really, really try to let that go, whether it's through practicing affirmations or mantras, like really just try to let that go. Be in the moment, focus on the other person, be curious. Most introverts are already great listeners. (laughs) So asking those good questions and then being like really patient and listening uh, to the other person's response really big. And uh,
1: let that be enough you know, let that be enough. You're making me think of this um, study I remember reading a while ago that was about social anxiety and overthinking things and getting worried. You know, you're just obsessing in your head about something that you said and you have the perspective that the other person is probably thinking about it as well. And, you know, the study was just demonstrating that for the most part, you know, other people are just very focused on themselves. So they have some of their own problems and they're thinking about that. Um, but the way that they tested it in the study was that they had people wear, one of the tests was they had people wear a Barry Manilow shirt to work because they thought that would be embarrassing for them. And then they checked to see if other people remembered that they had in fact worn that shirt and you know, the people who had to wear it were mortified and no one else remembered. But just I love the, <laughs> the random Barry Manilow example.
0: I love that. <laughs> um, Barry Mantle is not bad. He's good balance. <laughs> it's also really cool to like walk into a thing, like assuming that other people are going to like you because they probably will. Like people tend to like us more than we think they'll like us. There's another cool study about that too.
1: So one of the things you write in We Should Get Together is that for you, connecting with people in deep, life-enriching ways is the point of being alive. And I'm curious to ask you, what are you missing most about how you could connect with people in the before times? And what are you most optimistic about moving forward as a community builder and just a friend? (laughs) As a community builder, uh, what I'm missing and looking forward to
0: would be just gathering and facilitating IRL again. Because doing classes and workshops, like, I just love learning environments, whether I'm a student or a teacher, I think learning together is powerful and it happens online, but there's just nothing quite like a, like a real life. So I'm looking forward to that when it is safe. And the other thing is just sharing food. And it's not just about like, Oh, eating together safely, like having a a dinner inside or something like that. But for me, it's about when the meal is done, and a really, really good conversation is happening and it just like stretches into the evening and the night just like goes on and on. And you're like having this, like, like there's like a energy field around the table where you have like, not just share this beautiful meal, but then like get locked in this like energy force of beautiful conversation. And you don't know if it's like 10 o'clock or two o'clock, you're just really in that moment and time is suspended. Like that experience,
1: Oh, I can't wait to do that again. Mm. Hmm. Yes, yes, yes. So my last question, the theme of this season of Hurry Slowly is how do we begin again? So if you could ask the folks listening to reflect on one big question as we emerge back into community, or as we think about emerging back into community, since everything is so uncertain right now, what would that question be? This goes back to what I was
0: saying before about place and belonging. So I would say if you knew that you were going to live at your current address for the rest of your life, what would you do differently to foster friendship and community there? And whatever the answer is, I encourage you to start doing those things more often right now.
1: For the first time ever, I can honestly say that I'm actually hoping to live at my current address for the rest of of my life. All right, well, let's not go too far, but at least for the next 20 to 25 years, let's say. So I'm keen to take Kat's call to action to heart. Personally, I'm going to start by hitting up the farmer's market down the street next Wednesday, by continuing to chat up the gals who work at my local coffee shop, and by trying to make some new friends at my local rock climbing gym. What about you? What and who is close to hand? And where could you open up your energy to new possibilities for connection? This podcast is produced by Matt Susich with additional audio love from Devin Craig Johnson. If you'd like to stay in touch, you can sign up for my newsletter at hurryslowly.co slash newsletter. If you'd like to make a contribution to the podcast, and I would be so appreciative if you did, you can visit hurryslowly.co slash donations. As always, thanks for listening, and remember to take your time.